Quirinius. Do any of you have Quirinius in your manger scenes at home? I'm Pastor Rob Myles, and welcome to the Potter New Podcast. This Advent season, these weeks leading up to Christmas, we have been looking at different pieces of the manger and thinking about how they relate to the peace that comes to us from Jesus Christ. And, and this time, this week, I want us to look at Quirinius, whom Luke tells us was governor of Syria when there was this census that took place. But it turns out that Quirinius is, well, he's a historically debated figure, not so much that he lived, but when did he rule? And how did this align with Jesus's birth and this census? And, and is Luke just kind of making this all up? Well, I don't think so. But in order to evaluate Luke, and more importantly, to figure out what the importance of Quirinius is, we're going to need to take a dive into what Luke and others in his day would have considered history, what we consider history, and then uh, we can get into the real story of what happened or what really Luke wanted us to know. So without uh, much further ado, we'll get pondering. It's Dominic the donkey, jingity-jing, the Italian Christmas donkey. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. I loved high school history class. Not simply because I enjoyed the topic, but I really loved how good of storytellers my teachers were. And whether it was palace intrigues in the you know, in Versailles, or whether it was, you know, the reaction of Chinese emperors to, uh, you know, Westerners when they came for the first time, sort of after the Middle Ages, they just kind of made it interesting. They brought it to life. They put surprise and humor and joy, flesh and blood on these, on these dates. And uh, good history is a story, right? The word suggests it. In fact, in German, Geschichte is the same word for, for both of them. And so, again, good history is a story, but it's a story that uh, doesn't simply have a moral or a perspective, but it's a story that's based on what happened. And uh, sometimes they call Thucydides the father of, of history, at least in the West. And he begins to describe what happened in these wars, and he's not trying to do so simply from a mythological perspective, uh, sort of, again, a once upon the time or in a galaxy far, far away, but he wants to sort of ground in, in the actual battles and the chronology of what happened. And Luke, as a writer of what we have as our third gospel, understands himself as a historian. In fact, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, you have this prologue in which Luke talks about uh, quite explicitly that others have undertaken to uh, give you a history of Jesus, but he feels there was something deficient in their accounts, and therefore he also wants to give his his telling of all that Jesus has seen and done. And he has such a prologue both in Luke and in, in Acts. But I think it's worth um, considering for a second. Oh, also Luke in chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3 gives historical time markers, like in the reign of such and such a king, or, you know, again, you look in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you just get these, again, historical markers of who was in charge and again, you get the feeling when you read Luke's gospel that he's not writing um, 
myths, but he's writing history. That said, Luke is a brilliant storyteller. And it's in Luke that, um, because he's trying to tell the story of God choosing to become one of us in Jesus Christ. And that's a story that needs flesh and blood. That's a story that needs humor and surprise and laughter and villains and plots and twists and turns. And that's what Luke gives us. Um, you know, the Christmas story is, is just a brilliant story. Uh, the road to Emmaus, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan. Luke is just such a gifted uh, storyteller there on behalf of the good news of, of Jesus. So again, I, I want to make this case that Luke is a historian in the best possible sense of the word. However, if we're going to read Luke, and eventually we're going to get to this uh, character in the manger of Corinius, there's sort of two of our biases, if you will, as, as people in the 21st century about what we, what we consider to be good history. And the first is that um, culturally, we are uh, obsessed with time and chronology of when things happen. Um, so, you know, what is the, the crowning jewel of sort of, you know, England? They're the, the symbol of their sort of power is Big Ben. It's a clock tower, right? It's a big clock tower that could tell time accurately. And, you know, for most of human history, the vast majority of humans had no watch, had no clocks, had no calendars. All they had was the position of the sun and the moon when the rains came, when the trees turned, and when the crops grew. So for ancient people, whether something happened on you know, March 1st or March 5th, I just don't think they would have processed or if something, if we were going to eat dinner at five versus seven, they just, it would have been um, foolishness, that kind of precision about time or just would have been a bit unnatural. So there's an obsession with time and chronology that we have in, in modern culture that um, Luke just wouldn't have had. And the second thing uh, is that we have a belief, especially the probably the older you are as a human and the more you lived in sort of a modern culture of objectivity, right? You just, especially around 1900 or 18 to 1900, such a height of, of um, again, an assumption that the world is sort of an orderly place and that there can be objectivity when examining and researching uh, things and facts right, coming out of the scientific revolution and so forth. But, you know, I, now we're sort of in more of a, quote, postmodern time when we accept the fact that none of us can fully remove our biases and that we all bring our perspective, right? We can't ever fully undo the, our, our sort of our cultural lens that we have. Um, and an example of this is, is COVID, where when COVID was first coming forth, um, people who are very conservative typically were underplaying science, right? Like, no, 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 this isn't that deadly. You know, masks don't help, right? And, and people I found, like, they, they shared and they wanted to believe the websites and the science that, that backed them up. And typically, again, if they were conservative, it was to minimize the reality of COVID. Well, then after vaccines and waves and the death kind of mortality rates from COVID really start sinking. And for people that were you know, having no complications, it just starts plummeting. 
and people on the left, right? You know, no, I still wear masks. And, you know, the science says this. Again, I was just struck by, by how much people's perspective influenced how they observed what we would have considered to have been, you know, rational data. And so the, the last few years have been a humbling example of how much our perspective and our bias impacts our ability even to read something as objective as scientific studies about matters. All this to say that when we think about history, we still tend to probably approach with more of a modernist lens that there is some objective truth that a good historian gets at. Um, Whereas I think in the ancient world, and I think increasingly in this century, we're coming more and more to see that that, that history never is free of, of bias or perspective, that history is always a story, and it's always a story told by somebody from a vantage point. So I've done this long intro on sort of history so that when we consider Luke and his account now of Quirinius as governor, um, we can do so with, uh, with an understanding that we're likely more concerned with precision about time than Luke was, and um, we're probably more concerned with what we might call historicity or some sort of objective chronology or just sort of objective vantage point than, than Luke, even though he viewed himself as a historian, would have been offering because his point was to tell the greatest story ever, which is God choosing to dwell among us in the flesh and walk around and heal people, forgive sins, raise the dead in himself, then tragically be crucified and come back. So, okay, so that's just a primer on history before we get to Quirinius. When I was in high school youth group, we had an activity for a Christmas time sleepover where we all on our backs got the name of a Christmas person from the biblical story, and you couldn't ask who it was. You had to ask yes or no questions. And I got Quirinius, and man, that was hard to figure out who that was. I, I confess that I thought I knew my Bible, but I, uh, the name of the governor of Syria was not uh, part of what was, go- what was first on my mind. I, I, Quirinius wasn't in the uh, uh, paper doll uh, crush set that my family had, where uh, even with 25 characters, somehow Quirinius still didn't uh, make the list there. So there's... This again, this figure that's mentioned, Quirinius, and that apparently this, this census takes place under him. But if you are, again, a modernist reader of the Bible who wants a nice chronology, there's a problem. Houston, we have a problem. And the first problem uh, is that Quirinius was governor for, of Syria from likely... 6 to 7 AD, which, fine, Jesus could have been born later. However, Herod, uh, the king that is mentioned, whose birth uh, Jesus also coincides with his reign, is 4 to 5 BC. And so there is like a 10-year gap um, sort of where where Jesus, what what's going on here? So if and again, once the Bible becomes propositions or historical facts, then what typically happens is that um, liberals tear them down and conservatives kind of apologize for them and in some ways helpfully and in some ways kind of not helpfully. <laughs> um, but, but in this case, I'll, I'll offer you the, um, 
the perspective, I think, the most helpful way, if you really want to put this round peg in this square hole um, of, of sort of understanding what happened. And it has to do with um, the Greek and here. And there's a, a word uh, when it says this was the first um, census. The, the question is, um, well, of, of how many, of which. And that the census that took place when Quirinius was governor from 6 to 7 was likely is the one of historical significance in that uh, it sets off some events we're going to talk about a little bit later. So, so there's this really well-known one, certainly among Jewish people in 6 to 7, um, that AD, somewhere when Quirinius comes, it just everybody would have known about. And then the, the second thing um, is that you, you likely would have had in the reign of Augustus, many sensi or censuses taking place. Uh, this was what Augustus would do in part to, uh, you know, get the tax base, understand it. But there are also all sorts of other reasons having to do with sort of the Game of Thrones that the patrician families of ancient Rome would sort of play among each other as they vied for power. Um, so there were all sorts of reasons why there would be these censuses happening. And what, what may have happened was that, um, that Herod had his own, that, that he did to assess his holdings, and that such a census by Herod would have been one that would have forced people to go to their ancient ancestral lands, but could have been done under the, the guise of a broader Roman imperial decree for there to be organization and administration, um, and in this case, then, what Luke is basically saying is that there was a census that took place prior to Crinius uh, being governor. And in fact, some translations you'll note even um, have when they when they um, translate Luke two actually have this uh, little snippet there where uh, Crinius uh, or the Lasseus before Crinius was governor. So if you want to put uh, this uh, sort of square peg in a round hole or vice versa, you either have to have there being an earlier census before Quirinius was governor. The other ways you can do it is that you can have Quirinius actually having some other um, roles or being involved in the government there, which is, is plausible, not recorded, but plausible, and that that's what Luke's referring to. Um, so again, there, there's various ways in which people have tried to apologize for this clear historical inaccuracy, but I think the, um, the most likely is that there would have been another census that Herod would have engaged in. But I'd like to look at it from another perspective. If Luke is telling a story, why does he include Quirinius? And why does he mention the census? I mean, the obvious answer is that it forces Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem and to fill the Micah promise about Bethlehem and for Jesus to be born in the city of David. I mean, that, that does work out. But there's, I think, another reason why uh, Luke is doing it. And if you notice in uh, Luke chapter 2, Luke begins with the emperor 
and then goes to Kernius, and then goes to... Her- like, he just kind of starts working his way down the power chain. Uh, you know, to the man, to the woman, finally to the baby who's born in a manger, and then to shepherds. Like, you just kind of keep getting lower and lower and lower and lower on the social rank chart. And I think there's uh, a way there in which God is kind of saying... Um, or Luke is trying to say what God is is pointing towards here is that um, the savior of the world didn't come into power in a patrician Roman family through the most powerful emperor, uh, empire of the time, but rather came in totally on the margins. And so I think Curnius just forms a link in this descending sort of order of, of power. Then the second thing that Curnius uh, mentions there is that uh, you're part of the and the whole census that they're part of the Roman Empire that uh, Jesus was born in a people that were a subject people they did not have their own uh, autonomy and they lived in a constant tension and in fact the census would become the would produce a rebellion and would produce people called the zealots and you know you sometimes hear that word Simon the zealot like one of the the disciples the the zealots who really wanted rebellion military style against Rome and this would ultimately lead to the insurrection about 30 years after Jesus was risen from the dead that would finally bring down the second temple and uh, is forever famous for Masada and the great uh, standoff against uh, the Romans. So this event here, um, this census is also laying the foundation for what would have been, especially when Luke was writing his gospel, the key thing on everybody's mind of the failed rebellion and crushing of it, uh, and then the destruction of, of the temple. So Luke, by, by referencing this Quirinius-led um, uh, census in 7 or 6 AD, is also setting the stage for later events. And finally, just as a side note, Quirinius is just not a good man. He's just kind of this slimy kind of figure who's at the right place at the right time and rises up in, in the Roman ranks. Again, there's, there's something about introducing Quirinius that just really makes it clear that there wasn't simply an emperor who lived far off who okay, fine, there was this big pooba named Augustus, but that the people really lived under Roman rule, a Roman rule that um, led them into things like censuses. And the reason why the census was so hated is actually because the Bible commands against a census. God doesn't want the people to be counted because God wants the leaders to trust God for these military battles rather than sort of their arms and supplies. So it, it harkens all the way back then to, to Exodus and the time in the wilderness um, and David. So there's all of this later on. So there's all these biblical connections there that are made by lifting up the census. So when it comes to Luke as a historian, I think he's excellent. When it comes to Quirinius as a figure, you can go through the exercise of pro and con of whether he existed in the way that I think we've come to think about him. Or we can ask, you know, what is his role in the story? 
and his role in the story is that he's an emblem of Rome's offer for peace, of administration and military might. And that's always been one way to achieve a peace, a Pax Romana of administrative and military might. And it turns out that the peace that Jesus is going to offer is really different. And it's going to be a peace that comes to shepherds. It's going to be a peace that's found in uh, a bed of straw. And, and my hope for you then this Christmas is that, that peace, uh, not simply the peace of checklists that are done on a personal level or the peace that comes from imperial might, but the peace that comes from Christ, who comes to us as a simple baby uh, to be worshipped and adored. <laughs>